Hi everyone, this is Corina and Angel. Welcome to The Human Show, proudly presented and supported by worldpodcast.com. Here we explore the relationships between people, technology and business. Join us on this journey where we interview anthropologists, other researchers and industry people from all over the world, from India to Kenya, US, Europe, to right back here in New Zealand. Hi friends, in today's episode we are talking to Kathy Baxter, research architect at Salesforce, about chatbots, her work with Einstein, which is Salesforce's AI, ethics and bias. We cover definitions of AI, types of intelligence for bots, and how it compares to humans' frames of learning. We talk about enculturation, training data for chatbots, and the need for diversity and inclusion. We talk about fairness and ethics, and what methodologies can be used to build a neutral system that is based on unbiased data. We cover governance, bias, and ethics, and what can companies do to start reducing bias and take an ethical approach to product building. Lastly, we cover how a social scientists can approach this field. We hope you enjoy it. Hi, Kathy. Hi, how are you? <laughs> Good. Um, so, Kathy, I'd love if you could tell us a bit more about your background and the path that has led you where you are now. Yeah, it's kind of crazy. Um, <laughs> I uh, grew up in the 70s. The first movie I ever remember seeing in the theater was Star Wars, the original Star Wars okay. made me want to be an astronaut. And <laughs> I went to Georgia, Georgia Tech thinking that I'd be an aerospace engineer, because that sounded like what you would do if you wanted to be an astronaut. Turned out I was really bad at it. And I didn't like it. But I discovered psychology and got really interested in that. So I got uh, my bachelor's and my master's in engineering psychology. And that led me down the path of user experience research. And so I've worked at uh, Oracle, eBay, Google. Now mm -hmm. I'm at Salesforce. And I like to say I'm on the Silicon Valley tour. <laughs> okay. So um, do you still have the ambition to go into space? I, I'd love to. I uh, don't really think that I have <laughs> the, quite the right stuff. My daughter is currently super interested in it, though, so maybe I'll live vicariously through <laughs> her. She's part of that Mars generation, so maybe I'll get to see her in space one day. Oh, I have a similar path. I grew up on Isaac Asimov and um, Ray Bradbury and simply inhaling all of, all of the books with sci-fi and, and space travel. So, yes. yeah, I can totally understand. Um, so can you tell us also a bit more about what you're doing now at Salesforce? Yeah, so I'm a research architect and I get to work on research themes that crosses all of the different clouds at Salesforce. We're a, a cloud-based CRM company and uh, other companies might refer to them as product areas or business units. Mm -hmm. um, but Einstein is our AI product. And so I do a lot of research that is uh, specifically on service cloud. And we have our bots. That's our Einstein offering mm -hmm. uh, for serv customer service. But then also looking at research that spans all of the different clouds for Einstein. And so um, some of the research initially started off as how to meet user expectations for AI. What do users expect when they are interacting with 
different um, uh, AI products or services, and then began delving much more deeply into the ethics of AI and how do we build ethics into the AI products and services that we are building. Mm -hmm. Salesforce is a platform and we create a product that customers will then take and use for their sales or customer service or marketing. And so we don't touch, we don't see any of our customers' data so instead, we are offering a platform that our customers will then take and customize for their needs. So not only do we have to think about how do we build ethics into the AI platform that we are building, but we also want and need to share that out to our customers so that when they take our platform, they know what they should do to create the most ethical product that they can, because we very much believe that our customer success is our success. And so we want to make sure that we're empowering them. Yeah. How, how would you define AI? What is it? It is artificial intelligence. And it's, uh, it's all the hotness Right now, it is uh, a simple way of, of describing it is is having machines that learn based on exposure, based on past experiences. You don't have to program if this, then that. The computer learns over time. Um, you don't need to answer this because we know that a lot of people have like restrictions from the job. But is there an example that you can give us of like what? type of AI you've been a part of designing? So in Service Cloud, I mentioned the chatbots that we that we have. Mm -hmm. And uh, chatbots can work in a couple of different ways. It can be very structured, where it asks, uh, what are you what are you contacting us about today? A previous order, a new order that you'd like to place, tracking or something else. And so it gives you a set of very standard options. And you're simply clicking on the links or clicking on the buttons as to what you want to do. A chatbot could also leverage NLP, natural language processing, mm -hmm. where you type in, I want to track where my past order is. And then the bot will be able to recognize what that request is and respond appropriately. Mm -hmm. And so it can learn over time uh, what people are asking of it and what is the right answer. And in cases where it doesn't know the right answer, it should be offering up, I'm sorry, I don't, I can't help you with this request or yeah. I don't understand what you're asking for. Mm -hmm. Let me connect you with a human. And so hopefully over time, it finds that uh, it, it has to say that less yeah. and less. And, and Kathy, what is in, how do you define intelligence for a bot? Like what type of ranges of intelligence do you think there are and do, which ones do you work with? Well, there's very specific type of intelligence, like uh, some of your listeners might be aware of uh, the bot, that, or not the bot, but the, the AI that was able to beat uh, champions in the game <laughs> yeah. Go. In so that's right? very specialized knowledge. And then there's more general knowledge of uh, like AI assistance, where it can answer a broad range of questions. Uh, right now, we see a lot more specialized AI systems. 
So skills that are made available on Alexa, for example, are very specific and you gather a lot of skills together, but still individually, Mm. they're, uh, they're specific in what they're able to do. Yeah. Is there any parallels to humans? Um, I would, I, I wonder, like if you could compare it to the intelligence of a young adult or a child or, um, reference to the IQ system. Are there any systems from which you can infer um, that type of knowledge in connection to humans? It's interesting. There was actually an article that I read on Medium yesterday, uh, and it's titled How Babies Learn and Why Robots Can't Compete. (laughs) So in many ways, we we think of AI as as a child or or a baby that we're trying to teach it how to uh, learn language, how to recognize concepts, how to recognize pictures. And traditional training has been uh, in that similar way, similar way where we just expose it to a whole lot of pictures, a whole lot of language. Um, but it's actually quite, uh, quite different. The article that I'm referring to, actually, it was, I'm sorry, it wasn't Medium, it was The Guardian that this was posted in. And it, it's really interesting how it compares the way uh, the the two learn and how they're exposed to things over time. But I think one thing that that is similar that we need to keep in mind when we first introduce an AI system, there is a learning period where it's going to get things wrong. It mm-hmm. just doesn't have enough information mm-hmm. to be able to understand what it is that you need or provide the best recommendation. And so you have to be patient with it. You're not going to yell at a child that has a very limited vocabulary Mm -hmm. because it doesn't know all of the words that you know. And so similarly, you know, we need to uh, be patient until it can get enough exposure that it's able to do uh, what you expect of it. We can't expect AI to have all of the same fluencies, all of the same context, all of the same experience that that humans have. And so one of the recommendations that we make for chatbots is that from the very beginning, it identifies itself as a bot and doesn't try to fool users Mm -hmm. into thinking they're interacting with a human because one, that's just dishonest. (laughs) And two, it sets up unrealistic expectations. And so if you know that you're interacting with a bot and it's saying, I'm sorry, I don't understand what you're saying. You're like, oh, okay. I've hit the limits of what this bot can do. But if you believe that this is actually a human I'm interacting with, you're like, what do you mean you don't understand? I ordered my shoes in red, not blue. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Okay. So I was in anthropology, you know, we have a a concept which is called kind of enculturation and and works a lot when, when you try to understand how kids make sense of the world through their teachers. Um, which are, you know, normally parents, but also like wider cultural patterns of society. And that's how we kind of get get into understanding how the world works and how do we fit in it. So I was wondering when it comes to these systems, um, where does that information come from? Who are those um, representatives of society, of culture that kind of pass, pass that, those habits on? And how does that work? Yeah, so that would be the, the training data 
mm-hmm. for the systems. And uh, going back to the, the chatbots in customer service, you might use data from all of the emails or the past uh, chats mm-hmm. or uh, SMS messages that you've had back and forth as a contact center with your customers. And so it will go through and uh, consume all of that text. And you may label that data. So this type of email is a case about your router not working. Mm -hmm. This other email might be about um, your internet service has gone down. And so it takes all of that raw data and the labels and categories that you've given it. It's high priority. It's Mm -hmm. low priority type of things uh, to then train it and learn over time. Yeah. And it's really important that you be aware of the diversity and quality of that training data. Mm. Not only do you need to have a lot of it, but you ideally don't want to have really skewed data. So, for example, you might have a lot of data coming in from uh, your most unhappy users, the users that are having the most trouble Mm-hmm. Are these the users that are brand new to your system? And so this is the first time that they are using the product versus these are your power users. They've been using your product for years. There's probably very different questions that those two user types have, but maybe some are uh, contacting you through one means and not another. So just understanding the shape of your data. How diverse is it? How representative is it of your full user set? Do you have enough feedback and context Mm -hmm. to be able to make recommendations that are not only accurate, but also fair? Yeah. And who... who I love that you ended on this note because um, I was was actually thinking while you were talking, who makes that choice? Um, What is fair? What is not fair? um, Who designs those rules um, and based on what? Yeah, that's that is such a that's a that can be a tough question because what's fair to me may not seem (laughs) fair to you. And uh, context matters a great deal. AI is being created right now by a very privileged population Mm -hmm. and it may not understand the needs and context and culture and background of all of the end users that are on the receiving end of those recommendations or the decisions that the AI is making. One example that your listeners might be familiar with is the Compass system that uh, is used to make decisions for parole. The intentions behind it were good. We know that there is a racial bias in many of the decisions that are made in the justice system. And so the thought was, let's create a neutral AI that is blind to race. But the problem is the training data for that system is already biased. Mm And so to give an example, one of the factors that goes into that decision is whether or not someone has already served jail time. Seems, you know, for some people, logical to include that. But unfortunately, 
one of the factors that as to whether or not somebody serves jail time is whether or not they have the financial means to mm-hmm. pay a fine or to uh, be able to pay the bail to get out of jail. So this system is making decisions based on how much money you have. If you can afford to avoid jail time or not, that's that's not a very fair decision to make. So if you don't recognize that the training data is biased in the first place, then you're going to just continue to perpetrate systematic biases. Yeah. So what happened in that case? Did they um, did they rewrite the system? Did they change it to a more um, ethical direction? Unfortunately, it's still being used, uh, despite the really fantastic expose that was done by ProPublica. Mm-hmm. It's still being used in uh, in some states. Uh, there was an interview that was being that was done with a judge who uses the data that comes out of it, and he said he knows that it's flawed, but uh, some data is better than no data. Uh, I would argue that's actually not the case. Uh, it's the whole concept of garbage in, garbage out. Sometimes some data, if it's bad, is actually worse than having no data. A follow-up study was done where a researcher gave a group of uh, MTurkers, those are Amazon mechanical Turk workers, mm-hmm. uh, seven out of the 156 factors that Compass uses to make its decisions. Mm-hmm took these random people who had no training whatsoever Mm. and they were able to make predictions about whether or not somebody was likely to offend with the same accuracy or in this case inaccuracy as the compass system. Yeah. That is pretty striking that somebody with a fraction of the factors and no training whatsoever comes to the same conclusion as this AI system that is supposed to be highly calibrated. Yeah, it's fascinating, right? Because the development of AI seems to almost require a mix of set of skills that is not the same as if you're building um, I don't know, a vacuum cleaner, or if you, if you build a product that is just so strongly connected to a functional purpose. So I was wondering, what does that say to the composition of the teams that, that build the systems? Uh, and I'm, I'm thinking particularly between the relationship of research and design and engineers. Have you seen, how have you seen that mix um, work? Yeah, so... It, it's it's difficult. There's often a discussion of a pipeline issue uh, as to be as the one of the main causes for why we don't have a large representation of women or minorities in tech. Mm-hmm. And regardless of what the underlying issue is, if we don't have a highly diverse uh, set of people working on products, we are going to be lacking in this kind of cultural understanding. Mm-hmm. We're going to end up with product gaps. Yeah. Uh, for example, Apple Health Kit, when it first came out, it was able to do really cool things like predict your blood alcohol content level. Seems kind of crazy. Yeah. But it was unable to track the one health issue that 50% of the population has to deal with every month. Yeah. And I would argue if there were women on that product team, that probably would have been caught. 
<laughs> yeah, I, I have an example of my own. I try not to do this when I'm interviewing, but this one I wanted I want to say it. So um, I was in a meeting room as an anthropologist with ten um, engineers, men, and they were discussing the avatar of a of a chatbot um, to a product that had to do with money with loans. Um, and they were discussing amongst themselves that the, better, the best representation for that avatar is a blonde woman that looks like a stewardess because um, the users would associate that image with um, a trustworthy uh, person of service. <laughs> so <laughs> I was sitting there looking at them and I just asked them, um, so um, what is, the, um, diver what, what is the, the mix of women versus men in your user base? Um, and they looked at me and they said, well, we've had, we have around 70% of them women. So then I followed up with that asking, so do you think they would have the same association with this image? Um, and there was this huge silence for two minutes <laughs> in the room <laughs> because they were just projecting their own kind of, um, yeah, interpretation on that image. And because there was a room that didn't really necessarily have a diversity in this uh, particular subject, they were all reinforcing each other. So, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's it's huge. And if you can't have a diverse set of people in the room at the time that you are making decisions, then you really have to be incredibly proactive. I would say doing user research, no matter what the mix of people in the room, is always required. Hmm. But in the case of AI, especially when really critical life decisions are being impacted, like whether or not you get parole, mm -hmm. whether or not you're going to get approved for a home loan or a credit card or a car. These are all things that you really have to go above and beyond. And there's a research methodology, methodology called social systems analysis. And it's all about involving the people that are going to be impacted by your product in all phases of the product lifestyle, uh, mm -hmm. life cycle. Yeah. Some people might be familiar with um, value sensitive design. And that is based on an assumption that this product is going to be built no matter what. But we just want to make sure that it's built with the values of all of the users in mind. With social systems analysis, that initial assumption isn't made. One of the questions that is asked is, should this product mm. even be made? And so from the very beginning, you really need to include uh, representation of, of the individuals that are going to be impacted. And I would argue if the company that developed the Compass system had involved the individuals, the population that has been arrested, that you know, would be affected by a parole decision, by their family members, mm -hmm. by people in their community, that this system would have been uh, built differently, mm -hmm. that different factors might have been included or different weightings of those factors would be put in place. Yeah. Uh, I don't know why they're still hanging on and still continuing to claim that that the decisions are are fair, that, that this should continue. But um, social systems analysis is, is one methodology for bringing in people who are, who are going to be impacted and understanding how they would be impacted by your system. Yeah. How would you do that with a, 
with a social product that would span geographies. Like I'm, I'm thinking particularly like um, a product like Facebook um, or Twitter or, you know. Yeah, the, uh, you know, Google, Facebook, Twitter, they all have international research and design teams. They've got uh, user experience folks that are located in many of the, the countries where these products are operating, and they are doing regular research with their users, perhaps not in all of them. So Myanmar, for example, um, many of the users uh, consider themselves uh, Facebook users, not internet users, like Facebook for them is the internet. Mm -hmm. So there may be some populations that are incredibly difficult to access or to do user research with, but uh, it is possible in many of these locations to do user research with them. And it takes, uh, it takes resources, it takes time, mm -hmm. it takes effort. It's not trivial. But again, if you are if you are creating products that are going to have an impact on individuals' lives, it is a responsibility that you have. Yeah. And and who governs that responsibility, Kathy? Right now, there isn't. <laughs> um, I think uh, GDPR in in the EU is the first real hmm. set of laws that are being put in place Um to, to say how user data should be treated. For example, the right to download all of your data and delete it, the right to be forgotten on mm -hmm. the internet, um, all of the different ways that your data can be handled. Those are, those are laws being put into, into place in the, in the EU. Mm -hmm. Is there something similar in the US that you know of? Not at this time. Hmm. And is there a, a type of government governance that, that is created inside the company, inside the, the space that actually builds the product? Uh, many companies do have a set of values that uh, they may adhere to, that they may ask questions about and help to influence their, their product decisions. Uh, I can't speak to all of them. Mm -hmm. uh, I know at Salesforce, we have a set of values of trust, equality, inclusion, mm -hmm. uh, innovation that are part of our product planning decision mm -hmm. and do come up in conversations that we have around our products. Yeah, that, that would make, I assume, the, the, the role of research quite important, right? Um, and especially with people that are trained in, um, in sciences that can, that can facilitate those kind of conversations. Yeah, it's, it's incredibly uh, important. It's a, it's a huge responsibility. And ideally, the researchers aren't measured by the same set of, of uh, performance metrics as perhaps a product manager. You know, product managers or people in, in the business units, they are often measured by whether or not something launches, how many users are using the product, what the engagement mm -hmm. is like, how much money is generated. But with user research, the metrics should be whether or not you are identifying uh, user needs. 
are the recommendations that you are making to create a better product, are they being implemented? Mm-hmm. Oftentimes you are, I shouldn't say oftentimes, but sometimes you may be in a situation as a researcher where you have to make a recommendation not to launch a feature, not to launch a product or a service because uh, it doesn't meet the user needs, or maybe it's actually harmful to some set subset of the population. Mm-hmm. And so being in a place where you can truly be a neutral evaluator and make those recommendations uh, without fear of penalty is extremely important. Yeah. Do you do, you do like special types of trainings in, in that space? Yes. So, um, you know, my degree in engineering psychology, you know, there's there are courses on all kinds of different methodologies that we do, everything from interviews and usability testing and um, ethnographic research, mm-hmm. uh, as well as how to analyze all of the data, how to look for patterns, how to identify bias that's a that's a huge problem mm. in in conducting research. Understanding are you getting feedback? Are you doing research with a representative sample? Is there something in your in your design that is going to lead the the results down a certain path? Like asking leading questions mm. in a survey. Uh, and then there's also an ethical perspective. So in my program, all of the research that we did had to go through an IRB, an institutional review board. Mm-hmm. This is a group of people that decide whether or not the research you're doing is ethical. Is it helpful or is it harmful? Yeah. Should it be approved? And so we have, you know, had a course on research ethics and understanding uh, what you do and making sure that we all adhere to the value of do no harm. Yeah. You, the research that you do should actually provide benefit. You shouldn't be doing research just because it's interesting. Yeah. You know, I'm curious, you know, (laughs) would users like this? Would users do this? Like, mm, are you actually going to do something about it? You shouldn't be doing research just, you know, yeah, just because it's your own curiosity. Yeah. It, It reminds me of the Hippocratic oath in medicine, no? Um, very much. Yes. And not, not all researchers come from programs that have a research ethics course. Unfortunately, it's not that they would ever intentionally go out to harm users. Um, but there's a big discussion around dark design patterns Mm. and there are many things that you can do from a design design or user experience standpoint to increase engagement and quote unquote, make products sticky. Can, can you give an but example? Um, have you gone one? from making it sticky to mm-hmm. making it addictive? Yeah. And again, you may not intend to do harm, but if what comes out of it in the end is harmful, it's your responsibility then to figure out how can we, how can we fix this? Yeah. What are the things that we should avoid? What are those dark design patterns that we should not be building into our product because they know, we know that the outcome is not good in the end? Yeah. What would be an example of this that you could give for those of our listeners that are not familiar with, with these dark design patterns? Yeah, so uh, things like uh, infinite scroll. We know that for some users, they have a mentality of they they want this feeling of being done. 
I want to see all of the stuff in my feed and I want to reach a certain point <laughs> to know, okay, I'm all caught up. I know everything. But if you've got this infinite sc scroll and you're just constantly bringing up more, then um, they're, they're going to have this feeling of I got to keep going until I'm fully caught up. And of course, there's all of the features of gamification mm. where with the intermittent, uh, intermittent rewards, um, schedule, there are a lot of different things that you can do to make people, uh, more and more engaged in a product where it's much harder for them to walk away. And, uh, children seem to, seem to be much more susceptible to these than adults do, and they seem to have a much more difficult time breaking that addiction than the adults do. Yeah, I have an ethical question for you that just came to my mind um, that somebody else put to me, and um, I didn't know how to answer it. And I asked it to another one of our speakers, and she also said, oh, it's a good question, so I want to ask it to you too. <laughs> so... I had a, um, a game developer came to me and they were developing this uh, game of um, shooting, you know, shooting zombies. Mm -hmm. yep. And they asked me, said, oh, you're an anthropologist, so you should, you should be able to give me an, an answer to this. But what is the age limit that we should put on this product? Like, um, when can we teach kids to shoot zombies? Is there an age limit that you can't, you know, you can't go beyond? And, you know, I was kind of struck with his question um, because he was actually looking for a number from me. You know, tell me which which age. Is it seven? Is it five? Is it ten? Well, what would you answer to something like that? You know, the brain, the brain maturity is so fluid there although we treat in the the US we've got a a couple of hard and fast numbers like being able to drive a car at 16 being mm -hmm. able to vote at 18 or you're an adult at age 18 and therefore you can mm -hmm. you know sign legal documents you can drink at the age of 21 so we do have some hard and fast numbers in there for legal purposes but we know we've experienced universally that some children are much more mature, much more precocious mm -hmm. than others at different ages. And brain development is is very fluid. We've seen in, in various uh, research studies from a biological standpoint that the age 25 seems to be a pretty significant uh, age point in brain development. Um, so I don't I don't think we can give a hard and fast number that at a certain point, this type of game or this type of electronic engagement is going to be fine for every kid above this age and is going to be uh, harmful for every kid below this other this other age. I personally don't do research on uh, with children. Hmm. It is an area of specialization uh, and I'm I have a couple of colleagues I used to work with at Google who did specialize in uh, research with children. So they would probably be able to have a more coherent answer than what I've just provided. But um, I don't think from that I would be able to say an age that I would feel comfortable with any child, you know, engaging with this first person shooter game and, and would be totally comfortable with. Yeah. I think one of, one of the things that, that struck me was that they actually asked the question, you know, like, mm -hmm. yeah. um, and really kind of at some level being aware of the impact of, of, um, of that activity on, on a person. 
um, which really links a lot to this um, whole topic around um, ethics that you were were mentioning earlier. And you know, having that kind of awareness as a company that the products that you build have an effect, and you have a responsibility when you design them, right? Um, With, yeah, without a doubt, we we need to create an ethical mindset in our companies. We need to create an environment where you can ask each other the hard questions. And there's not a fear of repercussion, but also it's not just going into thin air where we have these conversations just for, you know, just for the sake of having them, that there is a meaningful outcome that if there are people that seriously raise concerns about a product, that something is actually done about it, that it's not just mm-hmm. shelved of great. Thanks for sharing your opinion. Yeah. Now we're going to move on and keep on doing what we're, mm-hmm. what we're doing. There really needs to be an ethical culture in the company where people are asking these questions and thinking about the greater good. We yeah. always want companies um, to be able to survive, you know, at Salesforce, as I mentioned earlier, our customer success is, is our success. And so with the recommendations that uh, I've shared out about how to build ethics into AI, I, I always stress when I when I talk with customers about this, we're not looking or we're not trying to recommend if you're a bank, for example, and the AI says that a particular individual is at high risk of loan default. We are not in any way suggesting that you should give a loan to that individual because, you know, you just want to be nice. You want to give everybody a loan. Um, if this person is at a high rate of default, you know, you're going to lose money on that. But let's think about it a different way. If you know that there's a segment of the population that needs money, we see them going to these payday lenders. I don't know if you you have this uh, type of business yes. in, in your country, but here we have payday lenders where somebody who needs money quickly mm-hmm. can go to a payday lender and sign over the the equivalent of their paycheck that they're going to be getting and they get that money in advance, but it's at an exorbitant Mm -hmm. interest rate. So we know that there's a segment of the population that that's how they are living from one paycheck to another. They're never going to be able to get out of debt because the interest rate is so high. Is there a different product that a bank could offer that is not your traditional offering um, but would be able to be something that this segment of the population can pay back. If you can do that, you have now grown your yeah, user base. Yeah. And these are folks that are probably going to be very loyal because you are providing them mm. this service that no other bank is providing. Yeah. And because you are not charging these exorbitant rates, these are folks that are going to be able to climb out of this financial hole. And so now you have created a virtuous cycle and now you've given back. So you're not losing money. You're just offering a different product from what you've always offered. And so it's thinking about how you, how you do business in a very different way. This reminds me of the example that you shared earlier with the Compass, because um, it's it's another example that talks to a bias that we have a society. And um, right now, it, it's, it's kind of like um, um, a, um, a class bias, right? Because all of the systems that are built around um, um, credit scores, they're basically put in there to, to keep people within their, their own class. No? 
um, yes. and to exclude people that are in a lower socioeconomical class and to keep them there, perpetuating that kind of um, system. So having a, I don't know, having an, an AI in, in the fintech sector that would con kind of point the fingers to whom not to give loans would in some ways perpetuate the same kind of bias that the Compass does with, um, with those users there. Yeah, absolutely. You just create this self-fulfilling yeah. prophecy. Yeah. It's called confirmation bias. And so you just end up, um, you know, creating an echo chamber. Yes. Uh, mm -hmm. And, and that's, that doesn't, not only does that not help society, but it's actually not really helping your, your business. It's keeping your business in a very narrow yeah. uh, niche that it's always been in. Kathy, you were mentioning earlier about the necessity of building this culture of ethics inside of organization. Um, what would be, for some of our listeners that are maybe interested in digging deeper into this topic, what would be your, your advice to start, yeah, just to approach it? Yeah, so we need to, to think about as we are, are hiring, we need to, you know, hire very diverse teams. We, we know that uh, creating diverse teams, that's not just race and gender, gender but also experience uh, and background, maybe not always recruiting from the same universities that you've always recruited interns from, for example. Mm. Um, more diverse teams are more creative, diligent, uh, hardworking, and uh, companies that include more women at all levels, but especially in top management Uh, they end up seeing much higher profits. So there's there's lots of research. There's no question mm -hmm. about this, that creating diverse teams is going to result in much better outcomes for your company. Yeah. Um, and also just better products for yeah. everyone in the end. If you are in a situation where you don't necessarily have the headcount or the budget to hire lots more people on your team to make them to make it a more diverse team it means that you're you're going to have to do more outreach look at other departments that might have greater diversity for the skills or the background or the experience that um, that you're lacking mm -hmm. and of course do much more outreach mm -hmm. to the end users of your product so going back to the social sentiments analysis And then you also need to really put things in place as a company. Again, it can't just be like hiring a chief ethics officer. One person can't stand in for the decisions that the individual people at your company are making day in, day out. Mm -hmm. So identifying different programs at your company that you can put into place and really walking the walk. So giving the space for people to provide feedback, to raise concerns, and then actually act upon them, not just saying, yes, we heard you, we're going to keep doing what we're doing. Yeah, that's great. Um, I have another question, because we, we normally here also um, are looking into the, the space of social scientists that are interested in going into business, into research roles. Um, and I was wondering, given your quite extensive and impressive experience in this space, what would be some advice that you would give um, our listeners that are interested in, um, yeah, entering this territory and doing research in, in technology? You know, it's, it's interesting. I, I, uh, I feel like I tend to have a, um, a bit of a, of a more academic 
bent. Um, and I can get carried away with developing or designing studies that uh, are, are more of what you might want to see <laughs> in a thesis or a PhD <laughs> program. And of course, we just don't have the time or resources to be able to do that type of, of research. And so I really rely on my exper experimental design background to be able to say, okay, here's the corners that I'm going to cut. Mm. And I know what the potential biases, what the potential risks are of of doing the study in this way. And then being able to communicate that to my to my product teams and um, maybe designing follow up studies so that I can follow up on areas that mm -hmm. I feel are of a particular concern that I'm just really not comfortable with the way the study was initially done and keeping an eye on those areas uh, is, is really important. So I think if somebody is going to move from academia into industry, they need to one, be comfortable <laughs> with this much faster pace of, of doing research. They need to be comfortable mm -hmm. with cutting corners, but they also need to be aware of when those corners are cut, what are the sacrifices that are being made? How are they going to account for them? Mm -hmm. uh, and being able to have those conversations with your product teams. So they don't walk away thinking, yes, this is the answer. Um, and we go in and we know for sure that this is the right way to go. But they go in with the right level mm. of, of confidence. And so they feel comfortable at a later point in time, opening those questions back up. If there's something that comes up, whether it's maybe it's, you know, feedback through your customer satisfaction surveys. Maybe it is a rise in um, tickets in your customer support department. However it is that you're getting feedback like, oh, hmm, maybe mm -hmm. something isn't right here. You're willing to open that question back up and continue to do, do research and say like, maybe there's another way we should be doing this. Yeah, this is great. Um, yeah, I think our time is almost up. All right. Um, thank you so much, Kathy, for uh, being with us today. Thank you so much for having me. I enjoyed talking to you. <laughs> thank you for listening, everyone. Follow us on our social media channels and look at the show notes for links to our speaker's work. Join us next time for more interesting conversations.